This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. The U.S. Army stands at a pivotal time in history, challenged to reshape its force into one that is leaner yet more capable of meeting national defense priorities. As the Army shapes a force focused on meeting the nation's strategic land power requirements in an uncertain strategic environment, the reality of current and potential budget reduction continues to challenge the optimal path for balancing the requirements of a ready and modern Army. The Army's approach to budget reductions is to source near-term readiness under affordability constraints. Guided by the Secretary of the Army's priority for balance and transition, several decisions are leading to change that will sustain land power in new ways, expending fewer resources. The Army's Deputy Chief of Staff, G8, and its Program Analysis and Evaluation Office play an integral role in shaping the Army's plans for adapting to an increasing uncertain environment while remaining the most professional and proficient land force in the world. What are the Army's key strategic and operational objectives? How is the Army restructuring its aviation portfolio? How is the Army using analytics to inform decision-making and resource allocation? We'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Major General John Ferrari, Director of Program Analysis and Evaluation within the Office of the U.S. Army's Deputy Chief of Staff. So welcome to the show, uh, General John Ferrari. Thank you for having me here. So, General, what is the mission of the U.S. Army's Office of the Deputy Chief of Staff, G8? And perhaps you could provide us with an overview of its history, mission, and continued evolution. Right. So the uh, G8, it's, uh, you know, that's military speak really for structure, modernization, and resources. And uh, in the Army, we call that programs. Uh, And it's got really three missions. One is to oversee the resourcing and modernization of the equipment in the Army, our combat weapon systems and platforms. Uh, The second is to do warfighting assessments and analysis, and we have an organization at Fort Belvoir that does that. And then there's the part of the G8 that that I work for, which is called uh, programs, and really programs is really about the intersection of resources and policy and strategy. And so so we take the Army's budget and parse it out. Well, go, moving from general to specific, um, what exactly do you do in the Office of Program Analysis and Evaluation? What functions make up this office? And perhaps you can show us and tell us how it's organized. Right. So I've got uh, three functions that, that I have as an organization. So my first is, uh, as we discussed, is to build and defend the Army's program. Uh, so each year we look five years out and we allocate resources between manpower, modernization, and readiness. 
And so my function is to help the Army and the leadership, the Secretary and the Chief, build that program, submit it to the Secretary of Defense, and then undergo a uh, several-month review of that program. I have two other functions. One is uh, we hold the authoritative database for resourcing for the Army that supports that function. And so it's uh, got many, many data elements and a lot of uh, technology involved in that. So we do that, and I've got a cell of government civilians that, that work that. And then my third mission is to provide the leadership of the Army, the Secretary, the Chief, and other senior leaders with an independent assessment of the program. So the staff actually owns the money and the functions. We synchronize the program, uh, but then we also kind of give an independent assessment of what the staff has said and that they're costing. And, and those three functions probably lead to your roles and responsibilities, your duties as the director. Perhaps you can give us a sense of what they may be, maybe elaborate on them, or give us a sense of what your what a week in the life of the director of this area is like. So I, I view my duties really as twofold. Okay. So first, I have a duty to the organization. Right. So in that, I've got uh, right now about 75 or 80 people who work for me, uh, and they're all talented and handpicked and functional because we oversee the entire army. They're, they're very talented people. And so I have a duty to make sure that uh, they are uh, trained, that we hire properly for that, and that we grow them in their positions so that they really do the work of building the programming and providing the independent assessment. My second mission then is actually, you know, supporting the leadership of the Army through the staff and providing the leadership with lots of options and decision space on where they need to be deciding things for the future of the Army, looking out one, three, five, seven, ten years and understanding the interaction of that and then defending that with the leadership of OSD. So I look internally not to really micromanage the organization, but, but, but to provide them the leadership and vision that the, the workforce needs to do what they need to do. And then I take their product, present it to the leadership or defend it or present it to higher headquarters or to the Congress. So, General, what are your, say, three top ch- management challenges that you face and how have you sought to address those challenges? Right. So the, the biggest challenge we've got is uh, fiscal uncertainty. Uh, because uh, and it has recently been submitted is that, you know, the president's budget has one dollar amount for the Army and for the Department of Defense, but it's 38 to $40 billion for the department over what Congress has set in statute as the budget in the Budget Control Act. Mm-hmm. So for the last couple of years, there's been this disconnect between what the president has requested and what the Congress has then appropriated. Uh, so managing that uh, is very difficult in a year-to-year basis because like any organization, you you need a certainty in, in, in the funding levels in order to make long-term decisions. And so so that's the first uncertainty. The second uncertainty is is the right the world, right? So the changing threat environment, right? So so you've got fiscal so as I said, we've got a, a set mission we get mm-hmm. and we have resources. Mm-hmm. Well the resource is uncertain, but so are the missions. Because uh, about 12 to 18 months ago, when the current defense strategy was set, there were many assumptions in there. One of the assumptions was not that we would have forces in Iraq again. Uh, And if you look at what's going on in Afghanistan, right, there are now proposals about U.S. forces not leaving Afghanistan. We were going to focus our resources and our troops in the Pacific. Well, now we've got ISIS. We've got uh, the Russians in the Ukraine and Crimea. So we did not anticipate that Today, the United States Army would have eight of its 10 
division headquarters engaged around the world. We've got friends who have coming back from Ebola in Africa. We hadn't anticipated that. So the activity going on in Europe, the activity going on in the Middle East, the activity going on in Africa, along with the Defense Department's prioritization and the president's prioritization of, of, of the Pacific, right? So now you've got an uncertainty in the mission and how you allocate the resources within it. So that's where you get the, the challenge for the Army and the senior military and political leadership is how do you take the uncertainty in the mission, the uncertainty in the money, and make long-term decisions because you're making decisions on weapon programs that are 10 or 20 years at length, uh, construction projects, stationing of forces, force mix and training, and you've got to balance that all. So, General, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your career path? How did you get to where you are today? Right. So I'm originally from New York. So I went to West Point and then became an armored cavalryman. And uh, I like to tell people, uh, so I've, I've been in what I call four armies, right? So my, my first army uh, was the Reagan army, Reagan buildup, right? So I came in in 87 and did my first tour as a cavalryman in uh, Germany on the east-west German border, uh, running armed patrols with Russians and East Germans on one side and was there when the in Germany when the wall came down and the Berlin Wall. So that was kind of my first army that I was in. It was an army of high readiness, a large army, 750,000, and then kind of culminated with Desert Storm. Uh, and we deployed from uh, Germany to Desert Storm. Uh, I then entered what I call my second army, which is the army of the drawdown of the 90s, right, the peace dividend. And we went from 750,000 in the army uh, down to 480,000 in 2001. And during that time, I went and got a uh, graduate degree, an MBA, and uh, taught economics at West Point. And then wound up uh, in the Pentagon, uh, where I entered what I call my third army. So I was a major at that point. In 2001, September 11th, was in the Pentagon uh, when, it, when it was attacked and the World Trade Center was attacked. And so, uh, you know, New York uh, being my home uh, and the Pentagon being where I worked. So that was really my third army and then wound up deploying to Iraq out of there as a planner in the Combined Joint Task Force there early in the war. Did some other assignments uh, and then uh, wound up in Afghanistan training, uh, working in the command that trained the Afghan police and army. Uh, spent a significant amount of time and effort there and am now in what I call my fourth army, which is now the drawdown. Ar- so so we've gone, we had the Reagan army, which was build up, drawdown army, the war on terror, right? We grew the army back up and now we're shrinking it again to below 480, down to 450,000 and maybe lower than that. So it's, uh, you know, it's been an interesting 20-year, 28-year ride through the different strategies and fiscal uncertainties and, uh, you know, the the demands on the Army. Well, General, I'd like to understand better your leadership style, but more importantly, your leadership principles that guide you and inform your direction. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What I do try to do is, uh, especially now, is I've become more senior. Mm -hmm. You have to make the transition from doing things to enabling people to do things. So the first priority I have is to manage change and lead change, generally because in organizations, right, the talent you have knows how to get the job done. But change is often difficult, especially in the government. And it often takes leader intervention because you're dealing with culture and processes and regulations and a lot of time and effort. So I try to focus my time on change. The second thing I'd focus on of the three things is... uh, growing leaders and managing talent. And in my current organization, I do it through the 80 people in PA&E, making sure that they have the education they need. We tend to hire young people and we don't have a very senior force. So 
because they become experts in what they do, they tend to be hired by the agency, they're, you know, the, the organization they're overseeing, which is great. They get promoted. And so we just have to make sure we bring in new people. And then the third thing that I focus on is really communicating upward and outward and downward, right? Because as a leader, your organization doesn't exist for itself. So you've got to understand what the organizations to your left and right are doing and then what your higher headquarters is doing. And so by spending a lot of time horizontally with my peers, with the organizations above us, I'm then able to translate that back into my organization so that the talent we have there is able to move in the right direction. What are the Army's key strategic and operational objectives? We will ask Major General John Ferrari, Director of the Program Analysis and Evaluation Office within the U.S. Army's Deputy Chief of Staff, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How can DOD improve its acquisition processes? Check out the latest IBM Center report, Eight Actions to Improve Defense Acquisition. The authors emphasize the urgency of acquisition reform in DOD, given budgetary constraints and security challenges, finding that DOD will need to gain every possible efficiency while resisting the temptation to buy defense on the cheap. This report continues the IBM Center's interest in better understanding and improving the federal government acquisition process. Download your free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Major General John Ferrari, Director of Program Analysis and Evaluation within the Office of the U.S. Army's Deputy Chief of Staff. General, would you outline for us the U.S. Army's key strategic and operational objectives and priorities? How do these priorities intersect and prompt the cultural change needed to meet the budget realities and the evolving threat environment? Right. So that's a great question. So the Army has recently, General Odierno has, uh, and the Secretary have put out a new Army operating concept, uh, which is really about how the Army sees itself meeting the challenges of the nation over the next 10 years. And if you, just a quick history lesson, if you think back uh, to the 80s during the Cold War when I came in, we had what's called Airland Battle Doctrine, which was really focused on defeating the Soviet threat in case of an attack. And it was a, a large mass army, hundreds of thousands lined up from the, the north of Germany to the south, ready to defend and act against the, the Soviet threat. What we then went to in the 2000s with the operations in Iraq and Afghanistan was different than, but similar in that we put a large part of the army into one country, but instead of operating as a very large unit to defend a very large nation-state attack, the army was operating in a very decentralized manner against a more insurgent-type threat. But it was still a very, you know, 150,000 people in one country focused on a single mission, operating decentralized uh, and in small units rather than large units. Where the Army sees itself going and where we've got to change to now is, and as we talked about a bit, is really operations around the world where you've got small groups of people in spread out throughout the entire world doing radically different things. So you've got a paratrooper company in Estonia, you know, working with their Army and their Ministry of Defense uh, kind of in a deterrence mode. You've got a headquarters and a train and assist mission in Iraq uh, helping a the Iraqi Army defeat a insurgent threat. You've got forces in Afghanistan. You've got, you're doing Ebola in Africa. You're doing, uh, you've got operations going on, uh, training and participating in partnership activities in the Pacific. 
So uh, all the while preparing for major combat operations in case they happen, because that's the, the mission of the, the military is to be ready for those unknown contingencies. So the big difference now is how do you have that expeditionary small unit where you don't mass an army, but you disassemble it throughout the world for radically different missions? And that's what we're trying to do. And, and one way you do that is for, to provide senior leadership with direct independent analysis of programs, alternatives, and priorities. So what I want to get to is would you elaborate on how you actually do this analysis? What tools you use to provide these sorts of options, if you will? What if scenarios? Right. So uh, first of all, the key tool that we use is talented people. Because if you don't have the people with the wide range of skill sets who can think analytically and then also understand how to use data and how resourcing and how politics work, you won't get to an answer. And so really we use a lot of different quantitative and qualitative tools to look at the challenge and the mission set, understand and decompose the problem set into actionable decisions where the leadership can then look at something, and we've done a lot of the work for them to say, hey, this is a complex problem, but it really boils down to these three or four issues, that we're then able to take data, either wargaming analysis or data from from the resourcing database or readiness data, and you marry together the relevant information with the relevant decision that then enables whoever's going to make that decision to have all the information they need or the best information they can have at that time uh, in order to decide what to do across a wide array of programs, everything from acquisition to hiring and firings and, and, and things like that. So, General, what is the program objective memorandum, POM, and what does it entail? Yeah, so, you know, POM is one of those great government words that, uh, you know, nobody would ever invent and nobody understands, right? <laughs> so what essentially the POM, the program objective memorandum is, it's a... Uh, It is a database that records decisions, resourcing decisions that aligns strategy and policies to actions. And I joke that when the Soviet Union was around, it had, you know, the five-year plan that they would do. And when it left, it left us here in DOD with the the six-year or seven-year plan, right? Uh, So the... It looks out five years into the future, but it also looks beyond, and it tries to take the programs and manpower so that you understand what you're buying today for weapon systems, what you're buying today for manpower, what you're buying today for readiness, and it projects it out to make sure you can live within the fiscal constraints uh, that you have. And then it takes it and subjects it to war games and other scenario development to see if the force that you're building for 2020 and 25 can actually accomplish the anticipated missions that you're anticipated to get. So it's a very complex undertaking that it's it's not just a database, but it's the entire planning, programming, budgeting process. Oh, really? Okay. So could you give us a sense, a glimpse into how your office, Program Analysis and Evaluation within the Deputy Chief of Staff of the Army, how it develops the investment strategy across the whole enterprise of the Army? We look across really three broad portfolios, and we try to balance those. So the first is manpower. So the one thing about the Army that's different than the other services, uh, the other services man their equipment. In the Army, we equip our manpower. So the Army is people. We are soldiers, soldiers supported by a civilian workforce 
that organize, trains, and enables it to go out and conduct operations. So what we generally first do as an army is figure out what structure we need to accomplish the missions and how many people you have to do that. Because that then takes up roughly about half of our budget on the military side. So once you decide then what structure you have, you then have to determine the capabilities and the modernization for it. What type of equipment will it have? How will you upgrade that equipment? How do you manage the investment portfolio? And the investment portfolio makes up, depending upon where you are in the kind of budget cycle, uh, roughly 18 to 22 percent of the budget. So the other 30% of the budget then is our readiness funding. And in our readiness funding, that's everything from training to education to the logistics needed to support the force and the installations needed to run them. And so the real question and, and, and the real analysis that we do in PA and e is, well, how do you balance that? And what does balance even mean? What if you had too much, given a fixed fiscal environment and a fixed amount of dollars, how do you determine how many people you have and how modernized they are and how much readiness they should have? Because we have, and what we're going through now, the challenge the Army leadership has is we thought we were going to have $150 billion a year. We now this year are going to have 120. So that's a 20% budget reduction. Well, the question is, well, okay, so how does an organization shrink by 20%? Do you take risk in readiness? Well, the challenge we talked about, well, the world may or may not cooperate with that, right? Do you take risk in modernization so you don't modernize, right? Well, there are threats out there that are modernizing their forces. And as weapon systems become more infused with technology, right, technology is spinning so fast, they require more money to upgrade them. And then how big do you have the force? And so we have to, you know, we're in the process of shrinking the army from what was the regular army with 570,000 down to 490 at the end of this year. So in the last four years, we will have taken out 80,000 soldiers from the force. And once you take the manpower and the structure out, it's very hard. That's a long-term decision. I mean, it takes years and years to build it back. So it's fairly irreversible and not very elastic. So depending upon whether you feel the budget reductions are going to be long-term, short-term, you may decide to take some readiness risk. You may decide to take some structure risk or modernization. And you've got to work through all that and think through that because what you don't want to do is wind up the, the, the one fear the army has the most is being what we call a hollow army. And by a hollow army, and General Odierno will tell you the one thing he worries about is having, getting a phone call from the president that says he's got to put a soldier in harm's way. And that soldier hasn't been properly trained and hasn't been properly equipped or we put soldiers and we don't have enough of them. Unfortunately, our history as a nation is when the first battle occurs, we tend to be not ready because we go through these boom and bust cycles of funding and we say, well, we're not going to do that again. And so in the Army's culture, that plays a very large role because we know it's the soldiers that we send to war. If you get it wrong, they have to pay the price of the wrong decisions. General PA&E manages the programming phase of the Army's planning, programming, budget, and execution process. Uh, first, could you tell us more about the PPBE process in general, and then tell us a little bit more about your role in it? The PPBE, as it's known inside the Pentagon, uh, has survived for a very long time because, in theory, it, it does what it's supposed to. And what it's supposed to do is start with a long-term planning horizon. 
And that's where you've got a lot of the policy folks, the uh, the, you know, the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, a lot of the operations folks, the joint staff, the warfighters and the combatant commanders kind of decide how they want to fight the force. And, and so they look out 10, 20, 30 years to do that. In theory, the planning phase gets done and hands it to the programming phase where I sit, which is then how do you take the resources you have marry them to programs to get that force in the planning phase. And that's really called programming. But that's where a lot of the hard decisions are made in the trades of capabilities. It then transitions to the budget phase, which is then where the comptroller uh, gets the program and turns it into appropriations so the president can submit it to Congress. Once the appropriation is done by Congress, it comes back to DOD to enter the fourth phase of the process, which is execution. And it's the feedback loop between all those cycles that actually each year happen that move the plan along. What makes it interesting and what makes it a four-dimensional chessboard is that so if you look today in the department, we're doing planning for what we call POM 18. So it's it's looking at, it, at 2018 to 2022. I wanted to ask you if you could explain... The role of your organization serving as the executive agent for defending Army programs with the Office of the Secretary of Defense, what, is, what's, what does that entail? So as the executive agent for defending the budget, it's our duty in PA&E to, to justify to the Secretary of Defense's staff the resource decisions made by the Secretary of the Army and the Chief of Staff of the Army so that we wind up with at least the same amount of money we went in, certainly not less. And it's always helpful if you emerge with more money than you went in, but given the fiscal environment, right, kind of the best you can hope for is to hold even in that process. But it's a very interesting review in that all the services, all the combatant commanders, all the defense, everybody's around the table trying to provide the information that the Deputy Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of Defense need to decide which programs go forward and which don't to the Congress. It's my understanding that the Army cannot adjust manpower fast enough to achieve balance of cross readiness, force structure, and modernization in the near term. I was wondering if you could explain in detail why that is the case and what are the implications of this scenario? So fast enough is a relative term, yeah, right? So, so we've been up till now eliminating 20,000 soldiers a year. Some of these are soldiers are being eliminated while they're in Afghanistan and, and deployed around the world, right? So it's a very painful and personal process. And you've got to be able to adjust the manpower, both the military and the civilian, at the same time you're conducting all of these global operations, right? So if you remember when we started, we said, hey, we didn't anticipate to be in Iraq. We didn't anticipate to be in in the Baltics. And so while you're reducing the force and the manpower, the force is still in motion. And so you've got to close units, you know, kind of like factories. But when we go into a, an installation and say that unit's going away, unlike a factory, we don't say, well, everybody in that unit's fired, right? We have boards and procedures. And so we look across the army to retain the very best we can and so it induces you have to move people around in order to cover the holes of the reductions. Now, that's been enormously stressful on the force and has really driven readiness levels down at a, at a time we're still cycling. And so the Secretary of Defense made the decision to slow that down just a bit 
So instead of separating 20,000 soldiers a year, we're going to separate 15 over the next couple of years per year. But we were on a path from 2012 to 2019 under full sequestration to reduce 20,000 people a year for seven straight years. So when people say, well, you can't reduce, well, sure, I guess we could do like we did at the end of World War II, at the end of the Cold War, and let 100,000 people go in a year. But that's not very humane. We've never done that to really an all-volunteer force, and especially a force that's been at war for 10 years. And the talent you're letting go, once you let it go, it takes 10 years to grow back, especially those mid-grade officers and non-commissioned officers. That's a lot of talent. So we're bringing it down as fast as we think is possible in the global environment we're in. The challenge is, if you're only coming down a couple of percent every year, our budget came off a cliff. We went from 150 to 120. So your budget is gone, and 20% of it's gone. And if your manpower, which makes up 50% of your budget, is coming down at a rate not coming off a cliff, that means your modernization accounts and your training accounts have to bear the brunt of that drawdown. Uh, We still don't know where we're going to end for end strength across the active component, the guard, the reserve, or the civilian workforce because we don't know where we're going to land with, will we be at the president's budget? Will we be at sequestration? So over the next couple of years, whether we wind up at a 920,000 army across all three components, active guard or reserve, or 980,000, which is where we're currently planned to be under the president's proposal, well, that's 60,000 people who we don't know whether we're going to retain or separate in 2018 and 2019. So we're working through all that, but you've got to meet payroll. So in the short term, you've got to pay people. Uh, The flexibility comes in canceling acquisition programs and reducing the amount of money you spend on installations, facilities maintenance, weapons maintenance, and in training. General, I just had a follow-on, and I was wondering, when you're talking about drawdown of, of people, what about recruitment? What happens to recruitment in that kind of a scenario? Right. So that's a very interesting question, and there are a couple of ways to go about it. Uh, So one way to draw down, which we did in the uh, 90s, was to shut off the recruitment pipeline, right? So one way to get smaller is just don't bring people in. You don't have to separate as many people, right, because you're not bringing as many in. What we learned from that experience was while we were trying to protect the career force by not separating them at as high a rate as would have been necessary, still a very high rate, and shutting off recruitment, you create a talent dip in the force for five or 10 years that you can never, ever recover from. And we paid that price at the beginning of this war in 2000 and 2005 because it turned out we were missing a large chunk of our mid-grade NCOs and officers because we never hired them. So what we said on this time around is we're going to try not to do that. We're going to still bring in what we're not going to what we call under-recruit. Right? We'll bring in what we need for the force we need, which means then you have to separate more people at the mid and senior grade. So tell people you've served honorably, but you're going to have to retire or you know, we're going to have to separate you at 10 years or we won't let you reenlist. So we're still bringing in 60,000 enlisted soldiers a year. Now, in order to slow the drawdown down from 20,000 to 15,000, Right? We didn't do that by just not separating people. We're going to increase the accession mission to keep up with that so that you keep bringing in the next generation of leaders. How is the Army restructuring its aviation portfolio? 
we will ask Major General John Ferrari, Director of Program Analysis and Evaluation within the Office of the U.S. Army's Deputy Chief of Staff, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. Government leaders and managers face major challenges today, including fiscal austerity, citizen expectation, the pace of technology and innovation, and a new role for governance. These challenges influence how government executives lead today, but more importantly, how they can be prepared for tomorrow. The IBM Center reports Six Trends Driving Change in Government offers a path forward for government executives responding to the ever-increasing complexity and challenges they face today. Download your free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Major General John Ferrari, Director of Program Analysis and Evaluation within the Office of the U.S. Army's Deputy Chief of Staff. General, the Army is fundamentally changing the organization and management of its structure and forces. Would you tell us more about the Army's efforts around generating force readiness with such initiatives as the Army Contingency Force and the Regionally Aligning Forces Initiative? Why are these being pursued, and what's the status of each? Right. So those are two very good examples of how you manage a complex world with a complex budget situation. So we have a responsibility to provide so many forces in case of an unplanned, large-scale contingency operation. But because we talked about that of our 20% budget reduction, we actually don't have the money to keep all those forces ready at this time. So what we had to decide to do was, well, do you give a little bit of money to a lot of forces and then they're trained maybe half of what they need? Or do you focus the resources and train a smaller pool so that at least you have a smaller set of the force ready to go? And that's where the contingency force comes in, right? So that's our answer to not having enough training dollars to train what the defense strategy tells us has to be ready to go. And the chief of staff of the Army has recently, you know, we'd like to have 70% of our forces ready to go to meet contingency ops. But we can only afford right now for a variety of reasons that we've only got about 30%. So that 30% is pooled, if you will, into what we call the contingency force. So they know that if something happens, they're the first to go. And what we hope is then that, and hope is not a method, but it's what we have, that A, either the contingency will be of duration in nature that that force can accomplish the mission, or B, we have enough time and resources get put in to train the rest of the force, or C, which is what we don't want, we have to deploy the rest of the force with less than optimal training levels. So that's the contingency force. The regionally aligned force is the answer to how do you deal with all of these dispersed missions in small unit sets, right? So that's the plan, right? That's how you deal with the day-to-day operations. So what we've done is we've taken parts of the Army and we've said, okay, for the next couple of years, you're going to focus on Iraq and you're going to rotate back and forth in units. And so we've kind of taken the Army and kind of instead of saying, okay, because the last couple of years, as we said, okay, everybody, it's Iraq or Afghanistan. And that's what we've been focused on. So now we've got forces that are kind of focused on Europe, some forces on Africa, some forces on Afghanistan, some on Iraq, some in the Pacific. And so we're trying to divide the world up to allow a degree of specialization of those forces. And then we enable the combatant commander who's conducting the operations in the region to kind of tailor those forces for what they, they need. 
And we, we think it'll provide a degree of flexibility and predictability to the combatant commander and to the forces as we try to adapt to this new environment of kind of brush fires popping up all over the place. General, you're doing another uh, comprehensive restructuring. That's around your aviation portfolio. I thought your team, you and your team, did a wonderful job at the Center for Strategic International Studies explaining how complicated this effort is. Could you tell us a little bit more about what you're doing with the Army aviation portfolio? Right. So the aviation portfolio is uh, one of the largest capabilities the Army has in terms of resources. Uh, And as we lost 20% of our budget, they were not immune. And they had a lot of modernization that had, we had grown it during the war. So we had gone from 10 combat aviation battalions in the regular Army, in the active force, to 13 to meet the demand. Well, now we were going from 570,000 people down to 450, so they had to shrink also. So they had to lose manpower, and they were losing modernization dollars. Well, they had seven aircraft that they had to maintain and sustain. So the decision was made, well, first off, we've got to get smaller. So you can't afford 13 units of manpower. You're only going to have 10. And you can't afford to modernize everything. So the decision was to do some very clean divestitures. So we got rid of three of our types of aircraft, the oldest types that we have had since Vietnam. And that enabled us then to take what was left of the modernization dollars and put them into the most modern, capable aircraft we have. And what we wanted to make sure that the smaller force was more capable Because if the smaller force was less capable and you were smaller and less capable, that's a recipe for disaster. So we integrated unmanned aerial systems into – so we now have manned-unmanned teaming. So that's a way to get capability without needing more people, right, into into the fight. We focused our modernization and sustainment dollars. When you get rid of an entire aircraft, the entire logistics system with it goes. And so you wind up saving a lot of money and resources. And so what we then now have is 10 combat aviation brigades in the active component. And then in the reserve component, they'll have a similar structure but without the attack helicopters because those are the most expensive platforms we have. And we really couldn't afford to buy enough, so we, we're putting them in the regular army. You may have touched on it, but what are some of the key challenges faced with doing what you've done to the aviation portfolio? So the challenges are when you have a portfolio and a structure that's been put in place over the course of a decade, right, that's a lot of change. And it goes back to leading change and change management. You've got to change all of the acquisition programs, the ones you had and the ones that you're going to do to support that. And so... Anyone involved with defense acquisition knows that it's very difficult to make changes there. And so we had to do that. We had to change all of the the resourcing and the dollars within those accounts. And so that's very difficult to do and took a couple of years. Uh, We had to change the mix between what was in the reserve component and what was in the active force. And, And that's difficult to do because, right, the Congress is involved in that mix because they are the ones who ultimately decide how we organize, train, and equip. And then we had to change the way we train pilots, which is fundamentally. We had been training pilots the same way in the Army since the Vietnam War. And so when we couldn't afford to replace or upgrade the trainer we had, uh, we, we, we went with a more modern aircraft. But it really fundamentally changes 
the way you train pilots. And I'm not a pilot, so I didn't make the decisions, but it is a very big cultural change. So you had to change the way you train people. You had to change the way you organize people. You had to change the way you station the force. We're changing the way we rotate the force into theater. We change the way we acquire and which systems we're acquiring, and we're changing the mix between the active, the guard, and reserve. So what you have to do is be able to gain consensus and sell the concept that everybody has to suboptimize in order to get the most optimal combination of resources, acquisition, mix, and manpower to get the most capability we can get out of it. Interesting way to put it. Very clear. I mean, you know, you mentioned training, and I'd like to switch to a more general focus on training. For the last 11 years or so, uh, units have been training around counterinsurgency operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. How has the Army updated its training strategy going forward? And more particularly, what is required to restore training readiness? It's really about developing leaders who understand how to train. And what we've had because of the war, the counterinsurgency war lasted so long, over a decade, is we focused all of our training and leader development on the war we were in. We had been focused, though, on a very local, decentralized fight. So what we've got to do now is make up for a generation of lost leaders who don't even know what right looks like, not because there's anything wrong with them. It's because we never taught them that. And so it takes time to do that. And so in the Army, what we're focusing on is using the combat training centers to do that. That's our premier training event for doing that. Now, over the past 10 years, we turned our combat training centers into mission rehearsal centers where you you train just for whatever mission you were going to do. We've now put them back to preparing people for the broad spectrum of warfare. But what we find is when you take a unit that hasn't done that and you send them in there the first time, right, they'll do well, but they're still learning what right looks like. You've got to take the organization and the leaders and run it through it over a period of time and years. You've got to get a couple of rotations so that the company commander, right, that young captain who goes through there as a company commander, he learns what it's like to be a company commander. And then when he comes back the next time as, let's say, the operations officer for the battalion over that, he now knows what's going to happen and he can train those company commanders. The fiscal uncertainty comes in. It goes back to we've had to concentrate our training resources for those rotations at the expense of preparing to go to the rotations. So the units don't necessarily have all the time and money they need to prepare for it. So they're going to those rotations, learning how to do that warfare, but coming in not at the level we might have hoped for had we had enough money so that they could have done the train up and come in just a little bit better, and then you come out a lot more better. Yeah, and so I was wondering, properly equipping your troops is essential. And I'm, I want to know if you could tell us a little bit more about the decision to continue investment in the science and technology area. And perhaps you could share the underlying rationale and the implications of pursuing incremental improvements of rather than procuring new systems. Right. So in the Army, we have uh, the way I view modernization is really in three bins, right? So the first is science and technology. The second is incremental upgrades. And the third is new development. So let's start with science and technology, right? So that's the investments you make for capabilities that will you'll see two decades from now. You can't predict invention. You just can't. I mean, it, it will come at its own pace. You can try to accelerate it through 
increased resources. But what we do know is if you don't make the investment, then the invention won't happen. So what the secretary and the chief decided was to protect the money and the science and technology because they owed that not even to the soldiers of next decade, but to the soldiers the decade after that. Because once you stop doing that, there's no recovery from that. Now, within the science and technology, now we protected it. We're not taking money out, but we're not adding money. Mm-hmm. We had to focus it. And so we, we look at technology simply as there are places we are technology makers, and there are places where we are technology takers. So we're trying to reduce funding where we are technology takers, where other people in the world are working on things. So information technology is a great area, right? There's a lot of money being spent around the world on information technology. So if we spend a little bit less, that technology will continue to evolve. Maybe not in the exact direction we want or at the pace, but it'll still move forward. But there are a lot of technologies where we are technology makers. Munitions, gun technology, survivability like armor, interesting enough, aviation rotorcraft, where if we as the Army don't invest, nobody else is investing. And so 10, 15, 20 years from now, we'll be where we are today. So we decided to protect that. But we had to take money from somewhere. So the choice then we were left with is, do you take it out of incremental improvement, which takes what you have today and in the near term makes it better? Or do you take risk in that area and instead invest in new development, new weapon systems that come online next decade in the 20s? So we decided to protect that incremental upgrade. Well, what that meant then was almost the full force of the reduction to modernization, which was disproportionate because we didn't get the manpower we talked about, is going to fall on new development. And so where we as an army have taken risk and we had to cancel most of our, the development of new systems that will come online in the 2025 period. What is the U.S. Army doing to change the way it operates? We will ask Major General John Ferrari, Director of Program Analysis and Evaluation within the Office of the U.S. Army's Deputy Chief of Staff, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. In a world inundated with all kinds of information, timely, relevant, and more predictive data can drive better decision-making. Law enforcement agencies are at the forefront in leveraging data and using innovative software to generate predictions that help police prevent crime. What is predictive policing? How can using analytics make us safer? Check out the IBM Center report, Predictive Policing, Preventing Crime with Data and Analytics by Jen Bachner, and find out. Download your free copy at businessofgovernment.org. What do agency leaders need to know about the federal acquisition process? What are some of the key federal procurement trends? And how can agency leaders overcome today's acquisition challenges? Check out the new Center Report, A Guide for Agency Leaders on Federal Acquisition by Trevor Brown and find out. The report offers practical recommendations for improving federal acquisition. Download your free copy of A Guide for Agency Leaders on Federal Acquisition at businessofgovernment.org and find out how the business of government is not business as usual. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Major General John Ferrari, Director of Program Analysis and Evaluation within the Office of the U.S. Army's Deputy Chief of Staff. General, what innovative approaches have you developed to meet your mission, and to what extent does your work involve and support unconventional thinking, 
daring ideas, and bold solutions. Right. So the American soldier is probably the most innovative and it is a long history of innovation, right? The American soldier takes whatever we bought for them 5, 10, 15 years ago. We send them out and they take what we give them and figure out how to do the job, right? And so innovation is really about doing something differently with what you have today. And if you think about what we talked about in the Army operating concept, we're essentially saying we're going to send small groups of people all over the world in an expeditionary manner. We're not really sure what you're going to do when you get there. But you're going to have to figure it out, right? So in the Army culture, operationally, right, we are built on innovation. And in the Army, we don't call it innovation, right? We call it mission command, right, which is we give you intent, we give you resources, and then we send you on your way, and you've got to figure it out within that, within those parameters. So how do we do that within the bureaucracy, right, which is, I think, what you were trying to get at uh, when you're trying to do change, right? So it's very hard because, right, the definition of a bureaucracy is it's set up to do the same thing over and over again. It's not that people are bad in a bureaucracy, right, but the rules and regulations and everything, the whole process is set up to be repeatable over and over and over again. So it tends to want to squash outliers and innovation because it's trying to do a re- something repeatable. So one of the things we're trying to do in, in the programming process is to be much more transparent with how we do resources and bringing in more people to help us. And that's in planning and programming. And so we reach out within the programming, we bring the commands in and our subordinate organizations to help them allocate the resources. Within the planning, we work with a lot of the think tanks and a lot of outside organizations to try to help us sort through the type of army we should have, uh, where resources should go, and we're trying to tighten up the feedback loop. So that execution phase, what's happening in the world today? Because gone are the days where, hey, for the next five years, right, you don't really need feedback from today to adjust because five years from now is going to be like today. Things are changing so fast in technology and funding and operations, we're really trying to tighten that feedback loop so that we can adjust the program to meet the innovation that's incurring and to encourage that type of innovation. General, I talk to many of my guests about the use of collaboration and partnership among agencies and with the private sector to achieve mission results. Would you tell us more about how you're leveraging partnerships to improve operations and outcome, and to what extent can collaboration and partnership drive innovation? So collaboration and partnership is fundamentally a human interaction, not about processes, and it's not about technology. And so one of the things we try to do is to get our soldiers and our civilians out into, you know, in the military, we call it the real world, right? Uh, So in the functional area, those operations research that I talked about, right? So we bring in about 40 or 50 new people a year. And what we wind up doing, not particularly those who come in, but co-committing with that, we take about 28 of them and we send them either to graduate school, places like Carnegie Mellon, North Carolina, Naval Postgraduate, where they're exposed to that and they build those networks and relationships. Or we do training with industry, where we send them to work with places like IBM and Verizon and Gallup. And so they're learning and networking and and getting those partnership and the collaboration and see how things work in other places. 
And then we bring them back and they come with them with their network. And we do the same thing with, with broader in the Army with a lot of the think tanks here in D.C. or nonprofits where we'll send 30 or 40 senior people off for a year to work with them. And so what you're doing is you're sending them out. And then what I tell them is when they come back, I need them to think differently. I need them to bring back a different lens to see the Army. Because in the Army education system, right, we train people and we educate them. They tend to come, right, they'll have a similar view of the world. What you try to do through these partnerships and collaboration is, A, get your people to see the world differently so you don't develop a tunnel vision. But also then you're a lot more comfortable to bring in outsiders into your organization to drive change if you've been with them and understand them and don't view them as outsiders, Right? So the more we get people involved with the think tanks, with other militaries, with other cabinet departments, with private industry, they're more likely to bring people in and go, hey, you know, I got this problem because I know you now. You're not, you're not an outsider and I'll bring you in and show you my problem set, which most organizations really are not interested in doing. But that's then what enables you to get a wide range of views of how to fix things. And that's what we're trying to do especially in areas we don't have a lot of expertise, cyber being one of them. We are very open to help in that area and innovation. So, uh, General, uh, what are some of the major opportunities and challenges your organizations will encounter in the future? And how do you envision your group evolving to meet those challenges and seize those opportunities? Right. So within PA&E, the organization I see, the major challenge we're going to have in the next couple of years is getting smaller. The Secretary of Defense, Secretary Hagel, directed, and then the Secretary of the Army and the Chief of Staff of the Army reinforced that the headquarters organizations are all going to shrink by about 20 or 25 percent. And so my organization is going to go from 70-plus people down into the 50s over the next four or five years. How do we keep the talent that we want? How do we manage the attrition? How do we reorganize? Because... While we're doing that, it's not like somebody's going to say, well, what I don't want you to do is this, right? I still have to build the program, be the authoritative database, defend the program, and provide independent analysis. Fundamentally, that means that I have to look differently. And so we're working through how we do that. And then it's really a further fundamental shift and even more empowerment of the people you have because they're all going to have larger responsibilities and scope of efforts, and they can't be waiting on the leadership to tell them, what to do. So how you set up that organizational culture and the organizational structure to enable you to do that job is, for me personally, over the next couple of years, you know, my biggest challenge. For the Army writ large, it continues to be the, how do you make the Army smaller with fewer dollars, yet maintain an incredibly aggressive global engagement? Because we're not just rotating into Iraq and Afghanistan anymore. Really, we've got to figure out the fundamental challenge for the Army in the next couple of years is how do you rotate and how do you meet the requirements in Europe, right, for the Russian deterrence? How do you meet the requirements in the Mideast for the counterinsurgencies in Afghanistan, in ISIS, and in Africa, really? So it's the Mideast and Africa. How do you meet the requirements in the Pacific, to deter and to conduct engagement. And so between the Pacific, Europe, and then the Mideast and Africa, 
you've got a day job that will keep the military busy, but you've also got to be prepared for major combat operations. And so how do you balance all of that, the reduced fiscal environment, the downsizing of the civilian and military workforce, with all of those ongoing operations yet still be ready to go for the major combat operations when they occur? So that's what the Army leadership is wrestling with. And then they rely on the talented military and civilian people in the headquarters to give them the range of options for what turns out there's no good choices, right? So that's one of the challenges I've got, right? So when I go to the leadership, I'm not bringing them good things. We are trying to figure out what's the the best of the worst options they have. What's the least worst option that they can choose? That's the environment we live in. And when you're responsible for providing the assessment in that often – Right, that doesn't make you the sunniest person in the room. <laughs> I like to, well, I like to get your advice. Um, what would you, what advice would you give someone who is considering a career in either public service or more particularly military service? Right. So for for anyone, and in particular in people in America, right, democracy only works when talented people are involved in it. And service is not just military service; it's service to government and to the people of the country at the federal level at the state level, at the local level, at whatever level it is. It's teachers, it's firemen, it's service in, in the bureaucracies that are much maligned, right, but, but are enormously important to everything we do. And so it takes a lot of work and a lot of maintenance to make this experiment called America work. And we're all part of it and we're all responsible for it. And so my message to everybody is you've got to participate. Uh, And if you don't participate in it, and it's not pretty, and it was never meant to be, but it is our birthright and our system of government, uh, it only works if everybody participates and uh, and everybody's respectful of everybody else, and we will eventually get to the right decisions. Major General John Ferrari, I want to thank you for joining us today and participating in our show. But more importantly, I'd like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Uh, thank you very much. And really, it's uh, it's those brave soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and the family members and the communities that support them, enable them, that uh, deserve the thanks. And uh, they're out there around the world today serving. Uh, and uh, so they're the ones that uh, need the thanks. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Major General John Ferrari, Director of Program Analysis and Evaluation within the Office of the U.S. Army's Deputy Chief of Staff. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. What is the U.S. Department of Justice's information technology strategy? How is the DOJ keeping pace with the transformative IT advances? What is the DOJ doing to build a future-ready workforce? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Joe Klimovich, Chief Information Officer, U.S. Department of Justice. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.